Bridging the Voices. Are humans related to chimps? How does plant change across different generations? The answer lies behind evolution. Hello, MediHealth Podcast listeners. Welcome back to Season 7, Episode 1, Education and Sciences. I'm Maritha. Hi, I'm Yijia Liu. Welcome, Dr. Willis. Would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here uh, to chat with you. Um, so my name is John Willis, and I'm a professor in biology at Duke in Durham. Um, I teach evolutionary biology and genetics and genomics, and I do research on plants to study how they evolve at the genetic level to adapt to changing environments and how they might ultimately become new species. I've been at Duke since... 2000. So I've been here for a while and I love it. Well, that's exciting. And um, you also have a research work on the uh, evolution of plants, right? So um, in the dictionary, uh, evolution is kind of like the change in the characteristics of a species over several generations and blah, blah, blah. So we wondered that what is the, um, the definition of uh, evolution up to you like what do you understand the evolution is so that's a good question so you can study evolution at lots of different levels you can study it in terms of traits that uh, you can observe things like morphology physiology and so forth and of course the fossil record you're thinking about changes in skeletal features or other fossilized parts that will change over time. But my work is primarily at the genetic level. And so, um, and it's, it's a fairly recent evolution. So I'm examining changes in DNA sequences that may be uh, related to changes in traits like physiology or morphology or life history. Um, but I'm trying to connect, uh, you know, those changes that we can see and observe as um, as biologists out in the field with changes in the genomic sequences of individuals and populations over time. So it's very much like what you described in terms of the definition. But um, our work is really trying to make that connection between changes in DNA sequences over time to uh, important changes in the way the organisms are adapting to the environment. Thank you so much for the comprehensive definition. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious about, so you worked on plants and we realized they work on this mammalian plants, which is like a yellow trumpet looking flower and with four, five petals. And what makes you actually want to learn on plants evolution? That's a great question because I didn't really have any particular interest in plants when I became interested in evolution. Uh, I was actually much more interested in um, paleontology and you know the evolution of mammals or whatever. 
But um, I realized that a lot of what I wanted to do was study how natural selection and other evolutionary forces are acting in wild populations um, on a day-to-day -day or generation-by-generation -generation basis. If you study animals, current living animal populations, they're often very difficult to study in the wild because they move around and you have to catch them and follow the to follow them throughout their lifetime is really, really difficult. I mean, you could do it in the lab with fruit flies and things like that in cages, but that's not really in nature. Whereas plants don't run away, right? You can study them from the day the seed germinates to when they um, die and reproduce. And you know, you can mark them and come back again and again to see how they're doing. You can also do experiments where you plant seeds of known genetic composition in different natural habitats and then follow them throughout their lifetime. And the plants we work on uh, live uh, just you know less than one year. So in fact, most of them, um, some of them live longer than that, but most of them live just a few months. And so you can study an entire generation and see how the environment has changed, who survives, who reproduces from what you started with experimentally just out in the field. So it's, it's, um, it's exciting for that reason, because you can actually study natural selection in action. And you don't have to wait many generations of your own life to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because like, um, in my first impression, like studying plants is a little bit boring. But mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Um, so given on the context of research, we're wondering like, how exactly do you, because oh, we know that you need to have a large number of sample size to make sure that your research is vi viable and also keeping sure, giving the controls like plan lives and wow, how do you, do you need to invest <laughs> in a huge plot of land or? Yeah. So usually, it's, it's speaking in terms of the where the plants live, the plants we study are native to Western North America. They're especially common in California, Oregon, and Washington, and they're they're very very common. So you can um, find them almost anywhere where there's water, um, at least during the spring and summer and winter. Um, and you can also find them, of course, around lakes and streams that are wet year round. They really need the moisture, but they grow on all kinds of habitats from down near the Pacific Ocean where they're splashed by seawater and are tolerant to salt um, all the way up to high altitudes in the um, Cascades and Sierra Mountains up to 11, 12,000 feet or more. So um, they just grow in a ton of different habitats. And a lot of that land is public land, um, you know, that is owned by the federal government. It's National Forest or Bureau of Land Management land or state parks or whatever. And so we can often get permission to work on the populations of plants living in those areas. We also ask if there's uh, particularly important populations that live on private property, often landowners will allow us to go and sample these plants because they're not economically important or anything. They're just um, 
wildflowers. And so they're often happy to have us um, work on their property. Yeah, I, I believe that they are also the very important reasons that you choose Mimolas to work on, right? Like easy to get and uh, also it has special characters to work on. And exactly. Uh, yeah. So, and I wonder that in your whole research career, um, what is your most exciting discovery? Oh, a lot. So, um, yeah, I'll first talk about uh, why Mimulus is, is so good for doing experiments and why we're able to um, study it in ways that would be more difficult in other species. And then I'll tell you about some exciting discoveries. So um, it turns out that this wildflower is super common. It's uh, present in huge populations that have high density. So you can just go to a patch of yellow monkey flowers and there'll be thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of plants all within a little area. So they have very large populations. So that makes um, population genetics really powerful to study you know, populations that are very uh, large. Um, the other thing is that they have, we've already mentioned rapid generation time and you can easily grow them in the greenhouse. You can cross different varieties or species in the lab and study the, um, the offspring. Often populations that live in extremely different habitats and sometimes are described as different species, nonetheless can be crossed by us in the greenhouse and we can make hybrids and do genetic analysis of the differences between the so-called species. Um, and then one thing that really uh, made a huge difference is that early on we discovered that Mimulus has a fairly small genome size compared to a lot of plants. So for example, uh, corn and pine trees and a, a lot of other plants have enormous genomes um, that would make study at the DNA sequence level very challenging, especially 10 years ago before we had these very powerful sequencers that we have today. So, um, because it had a small genome and a lot of people were beginning to study it, there was a, a building community. Um, we were able to get the um, Department of Energy uh, genome facility to sequence its genome as one of the first uh, wild plant species to be sequenced and all of the genes annotated. So that allowed us to really um, begin to dive down deep into the genetic changes that did allow these populations to live in different environments. So um, yeah, so in terms of what we've been studying, I'll just tell you a couple of quick stories that have to do with adaptation to different environments. What we've, a, a couple of folks in lab have been starting to study in the last uh, five or 10 years, how populations can inhabit soils that most plants find um, toxic. The soils that are um, inhospitable to most plant species. And so there are two examples of that that we've been working on. One is a very recent uh, type of soil that didn't exist 
before like 150 years ago. And those are um, where people started to mine copper in California. And the waste from the copper mines is extremely toxic to most plants because of the high concentrations of copper and other heavy metals. So you look at these um, copper mine tailings and almost nothing is growing there. It looks like a wasteland, except for mimulus. Uh, the yellow monkey flower is growing there in abundance. So somehow it has adapted to live on these copper mine tailings in the last 150, 160 years. So it's an example of very rapid evolution. And we know that there are genetic changes that have occurred because if you take normal plants from normal soils, even a mile away or half a mile away, and you transplant them onto the mine soil, they die very rapidly. And so you can do transplant experiments to demonstrate that the plants growing on the mine have become genetically adapted for life on those soils. And that allowed us to try to study what, how, what sort of genetic changes have occurred. And were they brand new mutations or mutations that um, existed in the populations very, at low frequency, being very rare, um, long before the mines uh, were uh, produced by humans. And then we're also looking at a similar kind of story, but it's a very long-term evolutionary story. So we're looking at um, soils that are called serpentine soils. Serpentine is actually the state rock of California. So it's, it's kind of famous. It's also famous because um, if you've ever watched someone give an address at the United Nations, like uh, President Biden did a little while ago, if you look at the videos of uh, these heads of state giving addresses at the United Nations, in the backdrop behind them is a dark green stone uh, tiled background. And that's actually serpentine rock, a fun fact. Um, so the serpentine rock is found in patches all over California and actually all over the world. And when you look at the soils uh, formed by erosion of these rocks, again, you see almost no plants living there. In fact, you could see patches of serpentine soil by looking at Google Maps and the, uh, the aerial um, satellite photos of the landscape. And suddenly you'll see these patches of ground that look like it's a moonscape with just nothing growing there. Um, and it turns out these serpentine soils are very, very toxic to most plants. And yet you find mimulus growing there. So um, it has obviously adapted genetically to those soils as well. But those soils have been around for many, many, many thousands, perhaps millions of years. So there's been a lot of time for these species to adapt to them. So again, we're, we're studying the genes that have changed to allow them to live in this new habitat of either serpentine soil or copper mine tailings. So that's very exciting work that combines ecology, physiology, plant um, 
plant nutrition, uh, you know, cellular and molecular biology and genomics. I have a wild question here. So what if like we sort of change other plants to have the same gene or genetic variation as mammoths? Can they also survive in these serpentine soil or copper mine too? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And of course, nowadays that is possible for a lot of plants because of you doing genetically modified uh, organisms, GMOs, or more recently, of course, CRISPR-Cas technology of gene editing. So um, in fact, we have <clears throat> for the copper and for the serpentine, we've identified specific genes that we think are uh, encoding proteins that are allowing them to live in these environments. And so what we're doing is inserting those genes into non-tolerant plants to see if that allows them to survive. And of course, we're doing that in monkey flower that uh, just are native to uh, natural, normal soils nearby. But we can also, in fact, we're also putting those copper tolerant candidate genes into Arabidopsis, which is a model system plant. And we could do that to almost anyone. We don't know yet whether these genes actually confer copper tolerance or not, but we'll find out in a couple of weeks. Um, but you could certainly do that. And uh, also things like salt tolerance, all of these other environments that Mimulus is able to cope with are environments that could be challenging for agricultural species, for example. So um, a lot of plant and animal breeders are very interested in naturally occurring variation in wild plants and thinking of perhaps using that natural diversity that has evolved uh, over time and using that to improve crops ability to survive on um, degraded soils or maybe become more drought tolerant, for example. And, yeah. um, and so how do you think the, this knowledge of nature selection will contribute to the human society? It, probably in a couple of ways. I mean, just in general, studying how populations evolve at the genetic level makes you realize that a lot of the genome is really not changing over time due to natural selection. In fact, natural selection primarily keeps uh, genes and protein coding regions the same and eliminates the vast majority of mutations that are bad, that are harmful. So, you know, counterintuitively, natural selection does most of its work by keeping genomes constant over time. And the parts of the genome that are changing most rapidly are actually not parts that are necessarily um, it changing due to natural selection. In fact, there's a lot of random genetic drift, as we call it, um, that is causing the least important parts of the genomes to be changing over time. And the most important parts are staying the same, with a few rare exceptions that are due to, you know, the few cases where natural selection is actually 
causing changes to adapt to new environments. So what you see in plants is what you see in fruit flies, and it's also what you see in humans, that the differences between, for example, individual humans and even between closely related species are usually differences at the genetic level that have no real impact on how the individuals survive and reproduce. They're sort of, um, yeah, the least important parts of the genome are the ones that are changing. So it's this, this very um, strange view of evolution when you've been educated in high school that, um, you know, evolution really is a change over time due to changing environments. That turns out not to be the case for the vast majority of the parts of the genome that we study. So that's just one little snippet of uh, what you can learn from studying different species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like how like, actually all species shares the same principle and learning something small from plants applies to the bigger picture. That's exactly right. And uh, that, that, you know, there's so many examples of that where um, you can really make progress in studying other organisms uh, because you could do experiments that you could never do with humans. You can observe many generations in the span of just a couple of years. And you can um, have sample sizes that are enormous, uh, you know, and you can study them in great detail. And that will often inform you about how all species evolve, not just the one you're studying. And of course, the other thing is that all organisms share um, a set of common features. They share the same, um, you know, many of the genes that we have as humans, you can find in other animals as well. And even in plants and fungi and even uh, bacteria. So there's a tremendous um, uh, commonality because all of life has shared a single common ancestor back about four uh, or about three point um, eight million year, billion years ago. Through understanding the growing patterns of mimulus, monkey flower, we're able to predict the quality of the soil. Coming up next week, Dr. Willis shares with us a secret behind nurturing students and professors. Stay tuned. This episode is hosted by Marita Tan and Yi Jia Liu, while audio is edited by Yi Ping Tian. Audios are uploaded by Chu Tong Fang. Graphics are designed by Tan Shui Culture. Articles are written by Gloria Gunn and Jason Duan. Articles are translated by Yue Guo, while newsletter is designed by Jason Duan. Social media publicity by Yu He Jin. Secretary contributions by Mei Chen Yap. Thank you to Professor Max Speller, our advisor, and Ms. Chan Swimming, our strategic communications trainer. Opening music produced by Chong Yi Huan. A huge thanks to Dr. John Willis from Duke University. Also, a huge thanks to DKU Health Humanity Labs who sponsored this podcast. See you next time. Many Health Podcasts. Bridging the Voices. Wu Xian Jiankang. <laughs>